My name is Michael Brady, and I am part of the dynamic duo known as Partners for Karmic Freedom with Linda Brady, the internationally recognized karmic astrologer. This is January 21st of 2023. It's a Saturday. It's about 20 of 11, uh, 20 of 12 midnight here in Tampa, Florida. Um, and I am here to report on the Cancer Project. And the title of this Cancer Project on the 172nd day of the Cancer Project um, is the beginning of the end. Linda, if you're just joining, uh, was diagnosed with cervical cancer on July 4th of 2022. And on August 1st, she began um, curative treatment uh, at Tampa General Hospital, utilizing uh, radiation and chemo over the course of five weeks, five days a week for the chemo and one day, I'm sorry, five days a week for the radiation and one day a week for the chemo, which would overlap that day's radiation. It took seven weeks instead of five for her to complete that treatment. Um, She also didn't do the one day of chemo all the way through. She stopped after three or four of the chemos, uh, three of the chemos, because she just couldn't handle it. And her team agreed that she could do that because she was ready to stop doing everything, both the radiation and the chemo. And finally, after a short break, when she completed that run of radiation and chemo, she came back into the hospital for two and a half to three days uh, to do what's called brachytherapy, um, which is, again, a cancer treatment in which they inserted uh, a tray into her cervix. So it's a manual insertion. Um, and they would put, they would deposit radioactive material into that. And that tray would be positioned at particular spots in her cervix uh, to eliminate any what her doctor liked to call the crumbs of the cancer inside her cervix after the, uh, the, the first round of treatment. And it required her, after they inserted this apparatus into her vaginally, um, to lay still on her back for the duration of that treatment because she would be taken down to radiation and they would insert the isotopes and for 20 minutes and they'd take them out and they'd wait six hours and take her back down and insert the isotopes and uh, expose her for 20 minutes and take them back out. And so the apparatus stayed in her the whole time until they were done treatment. They did four treatments like that um, once they got started. And so she laid flat on her back and could not move, couldn't lift her head more than like four degrees or five degrees during that period. It was um, a water torture exercise, to say the least. And then if you've listened to a previous podcast, you know the extraction of it was very painful. It evoked uh, early childhood rape experiences in her, in, 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 in her unconscious. Um, it was a horrific curative process. She managed to get through it. She's a trooper. She hung in. Uh, and then in December, uh, she was scheduled, she had scheduled in August because she's such a heavy sag to um, 
go to Franklin, Tennessee at the end of her treatment, her projected time of treatment back then in August um, or, or July, the end of July. Uh, she scheduled uh, um, a trip to Franklin over Christmas to hear in person the Oak Ridge Boys, which is a country uh, quartet that she's loved a lot over the last handful of years. Um, and it's been around a long time. And we saw them live last year in Franklin, Tennessee, around Christmas week, like on the 23rd or 24th. And she wanted to repeat that. And she set that up at the beginning of her cancer treatment because she's a heavy sag and she likes to travel and she needs to futurize all the time. She set that up as a carrot to help her get through the um, radiation and uh, chemo treatment. So we went. Um, however, she was done her cancer treatment. There was no more of that at the time we left. But she was still uh, having to utilize pain meds, which in her case was oxycodone and Ativan, which is a benzodiazepine. And both of those individually are habit-forming, and they're both individually habit-forming other than for short uses, which is days to a week or something like that, and she had to use them for six months. So her drug addiction is, has nothing to do with getting high or feeling good because she doesn't even like the way the things those things make her feel when she's not sick. <laughs> um, she wouldn't choose to use those things in her body uh, for pleasure. Um, but she became addicted because she needed them for treatment, and she needed to be withdrawn from them uh, in December. But because we were scheduled to do this trip, her team decided to just keep her on maintenance, and she was having a, having a major problem with an anti-nausea medication called Compazine, and they stopped that abruptly because that had a lot to do with what she was suffering with at that point, along with the opiates, um, and then told us to just maintain her reduced use of oxycodone and Ativan to keep her even until she came through the holidays. And in January, we would do a, a step-down process, a gradual withdrawal, and they would help us with it. So we went uh, to Franklin and had the Christmas experience. And Linda was um, a zombie through most of it um, because she, she needed to take take the medications to feel normal enough and when they would wear off she would feel really bad Um, and it had a lot to do with her energy too and her mood so she'd have she was having emotional crying jags that kind of thing uh, at that time period Uh, and her energy could like rapidly just fall off a cliff is a great description or analogy and then she would be dragging her ass as we like to say in the real world Well, she dragged her ass all the way through this Christmas vacation trip and even through the concert. uh, And she had booked the best table in the house this year. Uh, It's a a dinner, uh, an after-dinner entertainment show kind of thing. And, uh, you know, big round tables kind of thing with like 10 people on them. Well, our table was the front row center table of the, I don't know, 50 tables in this uh, hotel, conference hall. 
she had the best seat in the house. And our table only had eight out of ten people there. And so, so we were like in the front part of that round table. We just needed to turn our chairs. Or I needed to turn my chair 180 degrees around it. She needed to turn hers at a 45 degree. And we were right in front facing these four guys and as close as you ever want to get in a concert. And on that level, it was a wonderful experience. And they were very good. And she loves these guys. And I looked over to her during the show and I saw this uh, tired, sick old lady, l- like the image that conjures up when I say that to you, in your own head, you know, shrunken over, uh, wrapped in heavy coats. She was actually wrapped in heavy coat because it was nine degrees in Franklin on that night. And that week we were there, it was, it was freezing. It was below freezing, uh, unusually cold for that part of the country at this time of the year. And the and that kind of call is darn unpleasant, to say the least. And the hotel where the show was had roof leaks because of the rain and the weather and the snow and the freezing and whatever. Uh, and the hotel, the interior of the hotel was cold. I mean, we were in our, our coats and our scarves and our hats and our gloves in the hotel waiting to get in the ballroom for an hour before um, inside just to keep warm. Uh, and and we didn't know if we'd have to stay bundled up for the show, but the the uh, the ballroom where the show was did warm up adequately enough to take off your coat uh, during the show uh, or the dinner in the show after everybody filed in. So she was. I, I would look over and she was struggling to be present and struggling to take it in to have to, to have the energy to absorb this um, little shot of pleasure that she kept as a carrot on her stick all those months. And I felt so bad about that. So we got home January, uh, on December 29th from that trip, and uh, we had just enough medication to get to January 2nd uh, on the uh, oxycodone and the Ativan to maintain her so that we could be in step down. So on January 2, after the holiday, I got on the phone first thing in the morning, it was a Monday, to call Tampa General. Guess what? Tampa General had declared January 2 a holiday, like the 4th of July or somebody's birthday kind of thing. So they were on holiday routine, which basically meant the ho- their normal business operations were closed down. And I'm trying to call in medication to get that those two pills refilled. She had um, enough. Uh, uh, she was out of oxy that morning that I called in. She took her last oxy pill that morning. She was completely out. And out of it, she had one for the next day. I think something like that. And uh, I just assumed I, well, I assumed. I counted on, I didn't think about it wasn't a choice so i guess i did assume i didn't know it would be an extended holiday based on the calendar and blah 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 so i called in on i mean i only had that day i knew coming into the weekend i needed to get on the stick that monday and get her pills refilled by the end of that day so she wouldn't have a gap and then we could get to the step down conversation with her team here her inpatient team well, that didn't work out that day. And I struggled and pushed and hustled. 
and I couldn't, there was no way to get a response. The only thing I could have done that day, quote unquote, the standard thing you get on every call, everywhere, well, if this is an emergency, go to your closest ER. But going to the ER in order to try to get that filled, that even, that wouldn't even have worked, and we'd have wasted six hours. So I had to wait till Tuesday to call in and go through the process and the wait and all that crap and get them to respond and then get to the farm. I, I, I had to wait until Tuesday. When I got to Tuesday, she was in withdrawal. She was starting withdrawal from from the oxy. Holy and partially, she's about just about to trip into it completely with the Ativan. And I did get the meds refilled on January 3. I did pull that off on that following day, just like I thought I would pull it off on the Monday. But it was too late, really, because she already had a gap and she was already starting the withdrawal process. And at the end of Tuesday, when I got the uh, pills, that night, she said, I'm not taking any more of that. She said, I'm already starting to withdraw. Why would I put more of it in my body? So basically, she decided to go cold turkey. She started cold turkey withdrawal on January 2 from both an opiate and a benzodiazepine and the interaction of both of them. Well, the next 12 days, she, if you want to read about this on your own, about um what happens when uh, a person who's addicted to opiates goes through withdrawal? She went through all that. It's it's ugly. It's painful. It's rough. Uh, but Linda's the toughest person I've ever known, and she bowled her way through it. Now I'm not saying she didn't bitch and moan or or have a hard time and struggle, but she does what she does, and she did that. And when we finally got back in conversation with her team and other doctors, all, all these doctors now that are coming at us because of the fragmentation of the health industry, um, her other providers, inpatient, outpatient, specializing, she has a, a primary care and she's got somebody for, uh, for um, kidneys, she's got somebody for the cancer, she's got somebody for gynecology. <sighs> anyway, um, when we started to get back into conversation with these people, they were amazed that she was doing this or that she had done it or that she'd gotten through day five or day six or day 10. And especially because she's 80, she turned 80 in December. She did an amazing thing that most very rare, most people can't do. She completely withdrew cold turkey and she didn't have a seizure and she didn't have a heart attack and she just bowled her way through, which is the spirit of my wife. And that brings us to, um, uh, so that brings us to, um, Last Friday, this is uh, Saturday, yesterday, a week ago from Friday. Is that right? No, this past Friday. Right. Um... This past Friday, as we're thinking we're 
right on the edge of the woods, and we're about to step into the clearing, if you get that analogy from all of this, in our health and, and our recovery from the cancer and the cancer being done, all that. This Friday, this past Friday, uh, let me look at a, let me look, let me look at a calendar. I can't do that. Uh, um, Saturday, the twentieth. Yeah, yesterday. Yesterday, I'm in Saturday. I'm sorry. A week ago from yesterday. So a week ago from the 20th, that Friday, whatever date that is, help me out and calculate that for me in your head. Um, on that Friday, um, she was going through the worst, the last dregs of the withdrawal. And... Um, I got up that morning and she was, I mean, anxious and desperate and uh, despairing and, I mean, all that along with um, feeling constant pressure in her stomach and she's so tired of it and it was never going to end and, and she wanted somebody to do something about it. I spent all day chasing our healthcare system, inside the frame, outside the frame, inpatient, outpatient. I ended up researching, calling around about drug re- rehabilitation at the end of the day, at 4 o'clock, I find out from the rehabilitation person I was talking to, there was nothing in the system we could get responsive that, that day, a doctor to uh, address her in some her, her needs in some way. So I ended up going outside of, of the system we're in. Uh, I spent four calls on my insurance company trying to find out what providers would be uh, – in the network, uh, if it turned out to be a drug recovery or a drug rehabilitation uh, source that was able to help her that day. Turns out uh, there were only like two places. I called those two places. And one of those places ended the day at like 3.30. The, the, uh, the end of the inquiry search there was, oh, she's how many days past having stopped, which was like uh, 11 days or something like that at the time. The answer was... She can't be admitted anyway. She's not eligible for a rehabilitation program because she's already done the withdrawal part that we would be able to uh, legally or financially supported provide her assistance with. Duh. You know, by the books, by the the now... um, engineered prescription of of how everything works in health, she didn't need a hospital anymore. She didn't need inpatient service. She didn't need um, intervention. So we were left with at the end of the day, if this is an emergency, go to your nearest ER again in life. So we packed a bag at four o'clock that Friday and went in through the ER again. And was spent um, the weekend there and came out Monday. Or, yeah, Monday, I think it was. And... um, 
by that time she was com- she's completely clear now okay and, and and she doesn't have the pressure or all the side effects or for all intents and purposes gone and through that weekend stay uh, at uh, Tampa General, of course, you know, going through the ER, they they had to run all the CAT scan. They drew blood. They always draw blood when you go through an ER. Um, they ran a CAT scan. Well, it, coincidentally, because uh, uh, she was um, she, she was trying to get that, they took another look at her torso with the CAT scan, and they came back and informed her because of the uh, of the pressure in her stomach. They thought maybe the cancer had come back. She had squamous cancer cells with uh, her cervical cancer, and if you look that up, it's a fast moving or fast growing cancer. So it's it's possible in weeks after you're treated and it's cured, or months or years for it to for it to reoccur. So they were you know they needed to rule that out the whole medical profession uh, approaches raised on they figure out what's wrong with you by throwing everything else out off the table. They rule everything else. Whatever gets left in there is what's causing the problem, is the strategy of our healthcare model and our sciences um, at this point. So they ran a scan, and lo and behold, uh, they confirmed that she... Um, was cancer free? Um, I'm sorry, she didn't stay in the hospital over the weekend. We, we, you'll understand this by the time I get done. Uh, I'm a little groggy tonight, and I'm a little groggy on the uh, the backstory here. This is backstory, believe it or not. She went in Friday night, and I think we came home the next. Yeah, the, well, we came home that night because we signed out from that ER visit, AMA. At ten o'clock, so we spent six hours that Friday, a week from this past Friday, a week from the twentieth, a week before the twentieth, that Friday. We spent six hours that night in the ER, and at, at quarter to ten, they were they had run the blood. There wasn't anything wrong there. Um, they, we were told that they had done a CAT scan, and a CAT scan had been done. She had gone and come back. Uh, and we spent the entire ER visit, by the way, in a hallway. It was a mash experience, a mash, uh, a mash unit experience. Uh, Tampa General was so overloaded, still is on a daily basis, going through ER that 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 in the treatment phase after you get past the front screening, they got beds sitting in hallways up against the wall, and then they drag a chair over to the foot of the bed for whoever is along with the patient. Me in this case. And they're clustered around a nursing station and up and down the hall, up and down the hallways, like you'd expect at a war scene or something, and a mash unit operation. And that's the way we spent that Friday night with all that chaos and confusion. And there was a guy getting an arm set and his hand set from a motorcycle accident, an old guy, like six feet away from us in a bed up against the wall on the other side of the hallway. And we watched the whole diagnosis and procedure of setting his, his hand and his arm while we were there that night. I mean, that's how nutso it was. So at quarter to t- 10 that night, after we'd been there like five hours, five and a half hours, we finally got the doctor, a doctor come out and, and have a conversation with us. And um, he said... Um, the CAT scan claim looks like it's going to come back clean, but we don't have a report. He said, I had a look at it. He said, but I'm not, 
I'm not the person who interprets these. There's a, you know, there's an expert for everything these days. He said, so the report's not back yet. And, uh, we're, we want you to stay until we get the report. But, uh, unless it shows something that I didn't see myself, you're free to go home because there's no evidence. Uh, I don't think there's any evidence of cancer left in her body. And that's what we had to can the cat scan for in the first place to rule that out, rule that out. But we didn't want to wait. And so my question was, how long will it take to get the report back? And he said, it'd probably be an hour and a half. I hate to, I hate to, hate to tell you this, but you know, you got to wait another hour and a half in the hallway on the bed and the chair amidst the chaos of the night to find that out. But we're going to send you home. If it comes back confirmed negative, we're going to send you home. She says, he said to us, there's basically nothing we can do for you, ma'am. The reason you came here today, the, the, the pressure in your stomach or whatever else is going on, isn't anything to do about it because it's part of the withdrawal process and you're still in the, in the last dregs of it. And he said, the only thing uh, you had complained about sleep, you haven't been able to sleep worth a darn over the last couple of days or nights. Uh, we can, I can tell you about a non-habit for me, non-prescription over-the-counter sleep aid that might be helpful that you haven't tried. And he talked about a thing called Unisom or Benadryl. And I went, Benadryl? Because that's an allergy medication. He said, that's an allergy medication commonly used. I said, yeah. He said, but it also causes drowsiness. So in this case, it can be used as a sleep aid. And in fact, Unisom is often Benadryl in another dosage, a higher dosage per pill, uh, and is sold as a sleep aid, a, a, a sleep inducement. He said, that's the only thing we can, that's the only offer, that's the only thing we can offer to help you with. And he wanted us to wait an hour and a half to confirm and send us home. So Linda had it at this point. She said, I want to sign out. And she said, I don't want to wait an hour and a half. And, and an hour and a half, you know, it's like um, how you estimate work you're going to do. You never estimate accurately what you're going to do, no matter how experienced, how many years you're at it. It always takes you at least one and a half times as long as you thought it would, but often twice as long. So he said an hour and a half, and we're thinking, yeah, that's bullshit. It's going to be two hours or two and a half hours before this damn report gets done and gets back. And she said, I don't, I don't want to wait. I, you know, this place is crazy making. Uh, she didn't use the words or say that, but that's what, she, what we're thinking, you know. And she said, I want to go now. And the doctor says, well, you'd have to sign out AMA. And she said, I don't care right away. Um, and he said, well, actually, that's an option you can exercise. I can't make you stay here. And you'll still get the report. Uh, it'll show up in the My Chart app, and it'll be sent to us. And you can find out about the report. You don't have to be here to find out about the report, in other words. There's no functional reason you have to stay here. There's only this rules requirement thing, the right way to do stuff. He said, so, and if you sign out AMA, I can tell you, I want to tell you that it won't affect your insurance. Like, they won't refuse to pay if you're in, a, in an, improved, you know, uh, an approved process with your provider, which we were in this instance. He said, so there's no adverse effects, in other words. 
So she said, I want to. He said, okay, went to got, got the papers we signed out, AMA. And on the way home, I stopped at a drugstore and bought Unisom. And I picked up Benadryl and Unisom. They were on opposite sides of the same aisle in the drugstore. And I turned the bottles over and I looked at the ingredients. And I didn't know that before this, at, at this point in the drugstore. They both were, they were both Benadryl. One, the, the allergy side of it was less in a capsule, less strength in a capsule, less, and less MGs. And the, and the Unisom was higher, that's all. Like, you know, you could just take more of the one and it would be equal to the other. So I put the Benadryl back because I had gone in the store thinking, buy everything, buy whatever she needs. So she has choices. Um, and just came out with the Unisom. Took her home, gave her a Unisom. Oh, and she slept on the way home, by the way. And she hadn't slept in the car in months. Months, I mean. Yeah, like two, three, four, five, six months driving around. She fell asleep in the car, and we got home, and she had something to drink, some water or some milk or something. And I gave her the Unisom, and she got undressed, and she was sound asleep within like 10 minutes after she hit the bed. So, fast forward to the next morning, she wakes up, and I get up, and I'm, I go to the bathroom, and I look uh, in my phone app for the MyChart thing, and I find the MyChart thing, and I go, and I find a report uh, that was due that night before, and I read it very carefully. And it basically, it, it says, there is no cancer here without saying those words. It was more involved what you know, I actually read. But anyway, that was the meaning. It was the gist of what it was saying. So I walked out to the other room where Linda was having uh, tea and watching news in the morning as a, as a wake-up and said, I got the report from last night from the ER. And she said, what did it say? What did it say? With some tension in her voice. And I'd started to speak, and I thought, no. I said, and I just handed over my phone to her. I said, "Here," because I, I, I had it open to the, um, you know, the right thing at the time on the screen. You can read it for yourself. And I went back into the, uh, into our, our bedroom to get dressed. So when I came out, another ten minutes, just as I came out the door, she's finishing her look, her study of the of the report, and she's coming out. I hear this big. Yahoo, a form of a Yahoo. I don't. I forget exactly what sound my wife made, but okay. <laughs> um, a big Yahoo verbally as I'm coming through the door that called my attention to her, and literally she's coming out of the chair she's in like she's got a spring in her butt. I mean, her feet weren't anymore on the floor. It didn't seem like, at least I th- I'm not even sure they were on the floor. I don't know how you do that, but people do that. It's like. Anyway, I won't go into trying to analyzing that. You know me, I'm an analyzing fool. Um, and it basically was a, she flew out of her chair and had an expression of exuberance and relief and release because it was like 100 pounds were dropped away or a big, heavy balloon just pop and was gone. By the time her butt came back down into the chair, she was 85 pounds lighter kind of thing. And I immediately thought to myself, as I turn and go back in the, into the bedroom again, ah, uh, that's right, okay. So a lot of, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm already starting to think, a lot of the physical part of this, the pain, the pressure in her stomach that was constant and chronic and 
with her day and night and prevented her from sleeping and worried her, whatever that's going to mean in the end of life here, um, or she owns up to, um, was, was released, was relieved. And starting that moment of that day, her physical part, expression of the symptoms she experienced in withdrawal, were greatly reduced. I mean, it was like nine-tenths out of ten-tenths. She was left that one-tenth of physical feeling of uh, fullness or uh, pressure in her stomach. Um, You know, the ghost of it more than the actuality of it. Uh, And it stayed that way as she moved forward, period. So so I I learned, hindsight's always the clearest in life, right? I learned that... um, a lot of her physical reality in her body was being jacked up, driven at a much higher level by the emotionality in her body and the emotions that she was aware that she was feeling and having. And then, of course, the screwed up thinking that would have gone with those feelings, probably, most probably, you know, up top, as you're speculating about things. And um, so Tuesday... I mean, Saturday of last week, it felt like a load off her shoulders had finally been achieved. And because the load was gone off her shoulders, the physicality of that was greatly reduced by like like three quarters at least of what she was feeling, the pressure, for instance, in her gut the day before. So I thought it was a break process. I thought it was a breakthrough. I thought it was, oh, we finally got the edge, the edge of the woods and we get into the clearing as we move forward. The glass is half full, I says to her. And she agreed with me. So that brought us to last Saturday. And it's, Saturday, it's, well, it's Sunday now that I'm talking to you, but it was Saturday when I started this, to this Saturday. So what happened between last Saturday and this Saturday? Well, what happened is that we started to organize our life better, get back on track, if you will, more up to full steam. And um, on Tuesday of this week, this past week, this is Saturday the 21st, Tuesday morning, she says to me, uh, we had gone to the, uh, out on errands and uh, the, the food store and stuff, and she's been coming with me, very uh, needy, needing me to be very close to her, uh, like not even in the next room half the time. As she went through this withdrawal process and anything else that's going on along with it. Um, so she comes with me when I go shopping. Uh, and she opted to go in rather than stay in the car. So she's following me around the food store and she's trying to help me and all that good stuff. And her hips started bothering her. And by the time she got in the car, um, her legs were aching and bothering her kind of thing. Um, So note that. And then um, Tuesday... Mom, 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 mom. Yep. Tuesday, uh, no, th- that day that we did the shopping, you can tell I'm tired. I'm, 
I'm losing track of my my timing here. Um, She said to me offhandedly, oh, my foot's a little swollen. Now, she said that earlier to me like the day before. So on that day, Monday, Monday, Tuesday, Tuesday, she says that to me. Uh, no, on Monday she says to me. On Tuesday she says to me, I think my foot's really swollen. And she's wearing baggy pants and stuff, so nothing obvious, you know, that you casually see. I said, pull your pants leg up at, uh, at uh, early afternoon, I think it was, the afternoon. And I'm looking at her, her leg, her ankle, her calf, her ankle, her foot. And yeah, it's swollen. It's, it's larger than the right side. Uh, I'm comparing the two. Uh, and, and it looks, it definitely looks swollen, okay? Um, not a lot, not a ton, but it, when it's, you know, it's swollen. And I immediately started to worry because she had developed a blood clot in last September, uh, uh, 2022, and we had been in ER with that while she was right on the heels of ending or in the uh, in the last part of her active cancer treatments. And um, I'm thinking blood clot because back in September she developed a blood clot. We went to ER to have it evaluated, um, and and. It wasn't brought to our attention because the swelling back then, I forget what it was, it was something else, but uh, but along the way, anyway, we became aware that swelling in one limb is often indicative of occlusions or blood clots in that limb, and you're always worried with blood clots about them getting to the heart or the lungs, and the lungs are a pulmonary embolism, and the heart's just, a, I think, just a heart attack. Um that kills you. That's fatal, they say. Um, so it took us less than two minutes to run through all the options to go, well, the best option, the only option is to go to the ER again in life. So on uh, Tuesday morning early uh, in, in the day before noon, we came to that conclusion. We jumped in the car. We came back to Tampa General for ER run again when we just completed one the previous Friday, like four days ago or three days ago where it was. And again, it took X amount of time to get past the screening room into the treatment phase. And we were, and still looked like a mash unit. And we were and still done the same way. We were put on a bed up against the wall, a single bed kind of thing up against the wall. In the hallway near the nursing station, they dragged a chair for me and I sat down in it at the foot of the bed. <laughs> And they uh, and yada yada. Okay, so it turns out that they wanted to hospitalize her. Uh, I can't quite remember the exact sequence of events here now. I'm a little tired and fo- I'm a lot tired and foggy right now. Uh, but they admitted her um, on this past Tuesday to the hospital, and I suspected that was going to happen when when we uh, agreed to get in the car and go. So we packed 
having a great experience here over the last six months with hospitals and what it means and uh, how it works. We just assumed that we wouldn't be coming home. So I, you know, I packed right for that. Like I was going to be camping out again in a hospital 24 seven, uh, got the dogs together, placed them in boarding before we headed out down to the hospital, all that good stuff. Got to the hospital, went to the ER. They drew blood and they ran a CAT scan. And lo and behold, they did in fact confirm that her left leg had blood clots. So they admitted her once they, they were able to be clear about that. Um, now understand that blood clots in your legs especially, the only way they go away is that the body reabsorbs the blood, the coagulated blood. So your body takes care of it. If you get a blood thinner, you get eloquus or something else that's helping with blood clots, don't think, don't believe that the medication you're taking is destroying, dis- disassembling the clots that exist in you. It's not true. What they do, and they're called this, they thin your blood. They're blood thinners. They give you blood thinners at that point to begin to take every day. And that doesn't make the clots that in you dissolve and leave your body. That just prevents your blood from creating clots as you go forward. So here we are at Tuesday and they want her back in the hospital because um, they've identified, they know for sure she's got some some clots or some long clotting in her left leg going on, like six, seven, eight, nine, ten inches uh, that they can identify. They ask if she takes any blood thinners. The answer was no that day, although, although going at no. The answer that day was not normally, and she hasn't since this day, blah, 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 uh, but I gave her one going out the door today on the way over to the ER, I said. And then we got into the conversation about Unison, Benadryl, sleep aids before the one where we signed out AMA, where it was just informational. I thought we were staying. We thought we were staying or getting what we needed there. So later, this comes along, and they want to um, hospitalize her on this past Tuesday. So we came in. We uh, came in through the ER, and we ended up back in a bed, and it was to evaluate this uh, extra weight gain in her leg and the pain. She started having pain in it. When she walked around with me in the drugstore, I even remarked to her about it. As we went, and she confirmed it. And they're scheduling, they're saying this is what you need to do. You need to um, put a cat. we need to put a catheter, that's a tube, into your arteries in through your groin or your foot or a combination of the two. Uh, and when they, the tube, it's it, it's a little tiny tube. It fits in your bloodstream really easily. It's, it's not like it's a custom fit. Um, once they get that snaked in, then they can, 
inject things like I was talking about. I think I was talking about earlier. They can they can treat whatever is wrong that way. So what they need to treat is blood clots in her left leg and, and, and they're taking CAT scans and identifying them for sure and where they're at in the placement and study and all that and everything's going very slow um, but at least we have a room this time around uh, shared with another, a standard room shared with another patient draw curtains in between uh, kind of in the dark an industrial rocker um, I mean uh, chair for the spouse to sleep in or whatever. And there's a plan. They're going to insert, while she's in the hospital, a catheter, maybe on Wednesday or Thursday. Um, Hopefully Wednesday, depends on the workload, how many patients, all that good stuff. Um, And what they're going to do is they're going to... um, um, put a catheter in her and then they're going to put radioactive material in the catheter and spaced in a way, don't ask me how all this is executed, that it, it it's directly aimed at or rubs off on the, the potential hot spots or the very beginnings of something going on there that may or may not have to do with her cancer. Well, they didn't find anything. The machines didn't find anything. They didn't find anything through the machines as it proves. And there wasn't anything to do with her stomach now that she's home. So that brings us up to uh, this past uh, Tuesday, coming in the hospital, and what happened. Oh my goodness. And pardon the call. (laughs) Somebody trying to get into the, the gate of our apartment complex and asking me to be nice as a random person to open a gate for him when I don't know him. Anyway, um, she agreed to that procedure and on um, Wednesday morning, she went uh, down and went under anesthesia and she and they inserted... Um, a catheter tube in the veins involved. Of course, this involves CAT scans to find out where everything's out and, is, and, and to map it and stuff. They're doing that along the way here. And she's an inpatient. And so on uh, Tuesday when we showed up there, I didn't come home anymore. I, I, I went there assuming that she was going to end up hospitalized and uh, I, I can't leave her side. Uh, she needs me close. I, I'm I, I'm doing clients this this past week in my office. Have a client that comes in my office, or I come to my office to do a phone consult with a client, and it's an hour long. And and five minutes before the time's up, she's knocking on my door. She just opens the door and wanders in because she, she says to me, "I need you close." And I say to her, "I'm right here in the office. I'm right. You know, I'm like 14 feet away. I haven't actually got a hallway, but a short little." stint from the living room to the this other bedroom called my office. Uh, it's not close enough. She says, I need you next to me. Okay, And this has been going on for a while. Her, her need for me to be close to combat anxiety or panic or sadness or, or fear or the, you know those kinds of things. 
and um, I lost track of where I was at, guys. She's um, gets these catheters inserted down a vein, and that's the first day. We're staying overnight, so now we're one uh, Wednesday, Thursday. They're going to uh, inje- inject. No, I'm sorry. On the day they inserted the catheters, Thursday. So Wednesday, they insert the catheters in the left leg uh, that's slightly swollen in the foot, uh, and um, give her start her back on Aliquis, which is a blood thinner, and while she's in the hospital, and uh, they also put a a clot blocker, a chemical down the catheter into the vein in the leg that uh, will actually destroy whatever clot's there, break it up into smaller pieces, dissolve it, so that the following day, the following day, they can, um, the following the following day, they can um, suction or pull out whatever smaller pieces or, or debris from the dissolved, dissipated blood clots in her legs mechanically. Normally, you take Eliquis or a blood thinner. It doesn't get rid of the blood clots that are in you. It prevents further blood clots from forming because your blood's thinner. But this is, and the blood clots you have take weeks to months for your body to reabsorb them. So your body fixes what's wrong when you get blood clots, not the drugs that they give you, except for the except for these these um, um, clot busters, or I forget the term I used before. That's involved in this procedure. So. Yesterday, yesterday, yes, yesterday, I'm sorry, yesterday, Saturday, Friday, Friday, she goes down in the morning Friday, because it's Sunday now, but it's it's 12.30, so yeah, <laughs> I'm still operating at Saturday in my inside myself. Uh, so Friday, yes, the yesterday, that's Friday, she's scheduled to go down in the morning to um, have them suction out whatever's left, take the, the, take the tubes out, and we expect to be home um, on Saturday or latest Sunday because they want to keep you for a little bit after they remove the catheters kind of thing, just to make sure everything's cool and to make one last shot of it, you know, all that good stuff. So yeah, so Friday morning, um, she's wheeled down to the lab again, and I go with her, and we get there, and she's about to go in for the second time, same place, and have the, uh, and uh, have the, stuff suctioned out of her leg and the catheters removed and she's done. And then we'll hope to come home the next day, let's say, which would have been Saturday. Today. Oh, this is, this is irritating. Hold on, guys.
I just have to open a gate for somebody. I don't know who it is. Shouldn't be anybody for me. Anyway. Um, when she went in to have that last procedure, as the, as the cart is being turned the wheel through a door, the, the nurse says, time for a hug and a kiss, and we're on our way. Something like that. And, it you know, it sparked me to walk around the... the uh, the edge of the bed uh, before she got moving and I kissed her on the mouth and she didn't respond. She, uh, she, she wasn't a cold fish, but she didn't take part in the kiss. She just received it, if you will. And it wasn't a long involved passionate thing, but you know, lip to lip kind of thing. And as I pulled away from her, her eyes made contact what she was was she was scared because she's just about to go in and have another thing done. And, and she's at that stage where her sensitivity is such that she can't help herself but to get scared when she gets right to the verge of the next thing, whatever that is. And she was gone. And uh, I went to the waiting areas in the hospital to hang out until they were going to come find me, yada, yada. So an hour and something goes by, hour and a half goes by. And the nurse finally comes out and she says, went well. She's on her way back to her room. You can go up there now. She'll probably be there by the time you get back. I went back up to the room. It took, she was in outer Slavovia again in the hospital. Um, And um, got to the room and she wasn't there. And I'm waiting for like five minutes in the room. And just as I'm starting to think, I, I need to go back down to the treatment area the other side of the hospital and try to find somebody or get the nurse to call or something or do something to find out what is going on. A doctor shows up in the, in the unit in the, uh, that she was housed in and um, asked me if I'm, or, or, or asked for her by name as, as the patient. And I stepped in and said, I'm her husband and she's on her way back from this procedure. And, I mean, she should be here by now. And he said, oh, okay. And he got on the phone and and, uh, uh, called, and this is when they hit the fan. She wasn't back at the the room because she was now, he was informed, he passed on to me, that she was being called in for emergency surgery for a brain bleed. Now, if you're, aware of this process, um, blood clots in legs, clots, which usually start in the legs, can move through your body and they go from the uh, leg uh, to, the, uh, to the lungs, the heart, or the brain, or impact the brain. They don't go to the brain. But they can go to, uh, they actually move to your lungs, they move to your heart. They moved into your lungs, you get an, a, a a pulmonary embolism that is immediately life-threatening within 12 to 24 hours usually if it's untreated and it's 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 life-threatening if you get an embolism if it goes to your heart same thing you're you're either dead on the spot or you're dead shortly if you don't get some radical intervention and the brain thinks is that um in treating blood clots with blood thinners, you're fixing what's wrong from preventing more clots to form in the body, but your brain needs your, your blood at a certain consistency 
for it to work okay in your brain, okay? And when it's too watery, too thin, which is what a blood thinner would do, the porosity, the, the osmosis in the blood vessels breaks down so that your blood vessels leak. So you really begin, you bleed, you leak bleed into your brain from the veins in your, in your head. That's an, that's an embolism. Uh, I'm sorry, that's a, that's a brain bleed. So it's not something getting to your brain and breaking something. It's that the blood gets too thin and, and it, gets, it, it gets released through the arteries. Uh, and that's, that's a problem. You get blood pressure. You get pressure in your skull. And that pressure can, uh, can wreak havoc. It's life-threatening. So she had an emergency. I went back down to the other area. By that time, a surgeon came and found me got, because he needed to get me to sign papers for the release because she's already, and, and, and she went over the cliff. She became unresponsive and shut down or, 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 or unconscious. I forget exactly how that played out based on, because I wasn't there, the, the playback I got from people. But they needed me to sign the authorization. She couldn't sign for herself for emergency brain surgery. Linda had emergency brain surgery. Um, Friday, around between one and three in the afternoon. They had to remove part of her her skull, uh, like a four or five inch area, and then go in and... um, basically put um, catheters, very tiny catheters, in her brain, and then they recapped her and sewed her her scalp back on. So it could drain. It would continue draining. And, of course, opening or released a lot of any backup pressure. Well, that's like having a stroke, in a sense, in and of itself, because if you're messing with the brain and the pressure on the brain, uh, it starts to disorient the areas you're in. In, in function. So when she comes out of that, she's like a stroke, a stroke victim in a sense and, and the drugs and everything else. Okay. So from, um, Tuesday until last, until Friday, until Saturday morning at 2 a.m. Okay. Late Friday night, <laughs> functionally for us people at the time, 2 a.m. on Saturday last night, I was continuously in the hospital. And the night before she had the last procedure, she was so anxious about it that I didn't sleep all night because she had to keep her legs still while she had the um, the catheters in her veins in her legs. Again, like she had with that brachytherapy thing uh, in, in, uh, in November. Um, and she was afraid if she went to sleep, she'd bend her knee and, and she was told that she would mess up the catheters. They'd crimp and that, that she'd be in trouble. They wouldn't be able to use them. So I said to her around 5.12 that night, uh, well, honey, I'll just stay awake and watch your leg. And then you can relax when you go to sleep because I won't let it happen. And that, that, that worked for her. There's a little voice in the back of my head that said, 
oh, God, why did you say that? <laughs> when she said, okay, thank you. <sighs> but I did. And I literally didn't sleep that night while I was heading into that next day with all this uh, about to hit the fan. And spent the night, and, and she slept worth a darn, didn't sleep worth a darn that night, was up most night anyway, often on, more off, more off than on in her sleeping. And I spent the night pushing the glasses half full and her encountering her feeling the glasses half empty. She was saying a lot about, I'm so tired, I can't take this anymore, it's, it's endless, it's never going to end. And I, I, I did a lot of countering in, in, in that, in the course of that long, long night where she got a little sleep and I got zero. And then she went to the procedure and then she had the crash and the, uh, and the emergency surgery, brain surgery. Boom. And Friday night, she is a she's in an ICU unit, recovering from that, and they int and they had the intubator and catheter her bladder a catheter in her bladder, and they intubated her in this surgery. Had to intubate this her you know tube down the throat. And when you do that, you can't breathe yourself. A machine breathes for you, makes you breathe, it takes over your breathing. And they do that because you can stop breathing during these procedures and after these procedures from the drugs, from the, from the pressure on the brain, from a bunch of stuff. So it's standard ops to do this. Once you insert a tube, though, you've got to pay attention when you take it out. So it was 2 o'clock on Friday night. I'm sorry. It was 2 a.m. on Saturday morning before she got the intubation tube out after she'd been operated on uh, that afternoon, like between one and three or 12 and two, you know, whatever it turned out to be in hindsight. And I had been up constantly for, I don't know, 48 hours at that point. I don't know. I was, I was a, uh, I was a zombie by this time, but I wasn't going to go home until I found out what happened when they, took the, the intubation tube out, and you can't just yank them out. The machines they are, are, they're using are designed that if you can breathe on your own, when you do that uh, in your body with the tube down your throat, the machine gives way so that you can breathe with the machine, you can breathe over the machine, and the machine will give you that grace, if you will. And they count on that to make sure the person is capable of breathing before they take the tube out. Because if you don't have the ability to immediately take over your own breathing and, and they pull an intubation tube out, you're dead in a minute. They can't get one back in fast enough, I don't think, to prevent you. So they're, they're, they're slow about this. The point is, is that it took three or four hours that night and into the next morning uh, before they could successfully, they thought they were at the right point. They, the doctors approved of extracting the tube, and it turned out to be 2 o'clock when she was breathing on her own again without a tube. And at that point, I could go home and, and crash, and who was there to help me, uh, a nurse friend of ours, Virginia Roberts, was with me all the way through that night. And that, that afternoon, I had another dear friend, Darlene Elkins, um, spend time with me in the waiting room in the hospital and kept me 
help me stay uh, in balance with everything, if you will. Uh, and my gratitude to both of them has no boundaries. I don't know if I'd have gotten through that night completely on my own. So I came home and crashed. I got four hours of sleep. I went back this morning or yesterday morning now that I'm in the Sunday. Um, and she's like a stroke victim recovering. You don't know what functions you're going to recover. And, and just because they stopped the propofol or the drugs that uh, she needs to have the work done or the anesthesia involved uh, and there's a, and the lag time, there's lag time from that, uh, from, the, from the trauma, from the treatment, from all of it, from the meds involved. And then you don't know if there's damage in the, in the brain from the pressure um, of the bleed. You got to wait and see. It takes time to see how far a person comes back. Well, she's in that state when I, I go to see her. Um, she was able to identify, uh, to, to answer to her name right off the bat, but in a very, you know, that slow drugged drift of sleep and very low and mumbly kind of answer way and, and slow to respond. And sometimes she gets it and sometimes she doesn't. She was able to, to identify who she was, where she was at in a hospital. She was able to acknowledge that she knew me or I was her husband, that kind of thing, early on, but weekly. But you know, she, she's not completely gone after she's awake now and she's not intubated. This is Saturday morning, functionally my, my today, even though I'm in Sunday now. And she's getting better each hour that goes by. You know, you keep asking her things like, where are you at, Linda? What's his name? Uh, who is he? You know, that kind of thing. Um, to see how her mental function, her presence is, is returning. She's not completely gone. She's able to answer here and now questions. I, I, I would say her long-term, her long-term memory is intact in, in because she remembers who she always remembers who I am and acknowledges that in some way. If she can't can't directly say it to us or doesn't, her here and now short-term memory, her her ability to pay to the attentions or the details that are going on right now, is basically intact. So if you ask her to do something or about what her, you know, ask her to reach out with a hand or squeeze something, she can acknowledge that, she can respond to it, those kinds of things. Um, but it's not like you're talking to the person you know. You're, you're uh, talking to part of the person you know, if you will. Uh, and she's very internal, drifts out, drifts in a lot, or she's, sort of half in, half out, and very agitated, like she wants to get up and scratch her head. Well, she's got her head shaved, and she's got uh, tubes in, under her scalp and, and inside her. And I'm told by the nursing staff that uh, a person that has a, a, a brain surgery like this, their head's itching like crazy the next day. It, it itches. They have to shave your head, and the skin gets destroyed by that, and then you're stitching it, and... Anyway, it, it, it causes, I'm sure it's 
unpleasant as hell. And her instinct at the root stem or the brain stem is to reach up and scratch your head when it, uh, uh, it, it, it itches, even if you're not paying attention. And then she's paying attention to some degree. So she wants to voluntarily use her hand to get up there. And she can't do that. So she's in restraints. She's in mittens with restraints to keep her from rubbing her head and messing with the work that was done up there and that she needs because she's still draining. There's still fluid. And the uh, the, uh, catheters that got laced in through her scalp and down into her brain allow that to drain off so the pressure doesn't build up anymore until they get her blood to a proper consistency that it doesn't leak anymore. Now, that, but that's counter to what she needs down at the leg to continue to prevent f- clots from forming. So there's this antagonistic thing going on here, you see, between her brain and her leg. If you're making one happy, you're, you're causing trouble and risk to the other. If you take care of that, then it brings back risk to the other end of the spectrum there at the leg. So back and forth between the leg to the head, the head to the leg. And the doctors have to, the only thing they can really do is play it by ear back and forth and try to find that sweet spot in between. If you've got two things like this going at the same time, which she does now. This morning when I went in, they're also doing CAT scans every so often on her, uh, as often as they want to or need to. They found out overnight recently, they they did another scan before I got in this morning because I didn't get in until 10. I only had four and a half hours sleep, but I um, I wanted to get there at nine, uh, but I just couldn't get myself up early enough and everything done to get there. And, and so, it, and it, it, it turned out to be ten o'clock by the time I got there. When I got there, they had already done a CAT scan early this morning, <sighs> and she has one blood clot in her lung. It's not causing any problems yet at her lung, but it's there. And that, that's life-threatening. Uh, a blood clot in your lung is immediately life-threatening. Her brain is immediately life-threatening. It's fixed. Uh, it's not fixed. It's being handled now and treated. Uh, and she's not, you know, she's not over the cliff. They pulled her back from the cliff from the, you know, with the operation. Her legs clear. They they did ream. They did get all of the established blood clots, or almost all of them, or any big ones. There are only little tiny pieces, maybe left somewhere, uh, or weakly tiny pieces. Um, they got it all. In other words, if she hadn't had the brain bleed occur after, right after they completed that procedure, we would have we would be we could be home now, or or we. Yes, we would have been home on Sunday at the latest, Sunday night, this, the end of this day that I'm in. I'm just beginning at 5.01 now in the morning. We'd have been home by Sunday late and out of the woods finally, like really in the clearing, because she was fully present and sentient and cognitive and leaning forward and mostly i mean i was supporting that and all that but she was we were just about to accomplish what this whole journey since august 1st has been about to get back for her to get back to her life in a more than not normal way and be able to uh carry forth 
right on the verge of stepping out of the wood line into that big open field, and then the brain bleed showed up. That's the report. That's what's happened. Um, doctors are optimistic. Surgeons, doctors, all kinds of doctors are optimistic about prognosis until you're dead. Because that's just the way our culture, our AMA is rigged. But she's got serious issues, gang. Um, I think she, I believe she's at an end of life. She hasn't left me yet. She hasn't left the planet. She hasn't left her body yet. But I'm, I don't believe she's going to recover. And on a spiritual level, she doesn't want to recover. We've had years of talking with each other off and on about when we get old and the end of life and how we want that to look. And neither one of us want to be um, a bother. We don't want to be chronically ill. We don't want to be um, here in a vegetative state, withering away inch by inch over long periods of time and, and all that entails. We've had that conversation many times, and it is rock solid in both of us. And we've had that re- that kind of conversation recently in various forms over the last months and particularly over the last couple of weeks, even up to that long night before the test, before the, the crash of the, of the brain bleed the next day. That long night we were talking about the whole shlemiel, if you will. And Linda's very clear and very adamant my, our whole life together. So when she started treatment in August, we went through the paperwork, you know, the paperwork. Um, This morning when I went in, I put a a D, I'm sorry. Friday evening when her tube was still in, but she was out of surgery, was back in IC, she was up in ICU, and we were there. We were joining her there for the vigil over the extraction of the, of the breathing tube. I put a DNR order on her chart. Uh, I have that authority, uh, and we very clearly have talked this to death, and it's what she wanted. So I'm telling all of you, that if something happens that requires her in, car's intervention to save her life, they're not going to do that at this point. And it's what Linda, both I and Linda, wanted, have always wanted and wants in this instant at this moment. The doctors are talking minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, week to week, uh, always with if, we do this, and if she's if this happens with her, she'll improve. And if her improvement happens, they won't say she'll get better, but they won't say that she's not going to get better either. They just won't go there, and they'll give you a thousand reasons for it. I mean, I had her brain surgeon standing there today, in uh, an hour after I got there, talking to me about what he did and how she's doing. And he he had this long-winded story about three examples of uh, he doesn't like to predict anything because you can't, because here's three examples where this old guy and this young guy and this other guy 
uh, had brain bleeds and, and uh, uh, lung embolisms and uh, and they were supposed to die and they didn't. And they lived for another 20 years and they got, yeah, but it's 1%. You know, it's like trying to win the lottery. I mean, he's talking to me about those examples. So I'm hearing the lean is hang in there and be optimistic and see how it, how it goes and how much improvement she does. Even if she got better, we're talking, um, I now know that we're talking uh, no more than two more days in the neuro ICU, by the way, which is the first decent hospital room I've ever seen in a hospital in our time there. She's finally in a decent, and, and I have a place to actually sleep. I'd actually like to sleep, and I'm not going to sleep there. <laughs> Uh, and the last time I had to sleep in a hospital, I didn't sleep. But if I had slept that night, I would have been on a on a normal slide under the table chair that was slightly padded, not you know the bare bones fiberglass version, but still just the chair. And now she's in a room by herself, and uh, it's three times the size of a standard two person room, and it's got that little it's got a couch in it plus one of those industrial recliners. Uh, State-of-the-art. She won't be there, though, any longer than another two or three days max, and they'll transfer to a standard ICU unit on another floor, and that will be a two-person basic standard room design. So back to the normal coach, if you will, uh, if I use an airplane analogy. If she got that, if she gets that far, She could have anywhere from months to never to completely regain her functions, her mind functions, her mind, and her body response functions. So you just have to play the by ear again. Okay. And statistically, the odds are very against this. It's that 1% that the guy gave me the three examples of over the course of his career. Uh, so they're optimistic, and that's the way they frame it, and that's the way they address it. And it would be, and even if it, even if the quote unquote miracle happens, it would be a long, arduous process before we got out of the woods into a clearing, any kind of clearing again. And I don't think she wants. I don't think her soul wants that. I know her ego, her personality, doesn't want that. She can't argue about it. I, I have 15 or 20 times when I have the space and I'm alone with her um, queried, tested, whether she knows that she had a brain bleed and she's had brain surgery. And the answer is she does not know that. No matter which way that's attacked or addressed or questioned, she doesn't. At the same time, She's fighting to get her mittens off so she can scratch her head because it itches. So she knows something's up up there because it itches like hell. And she is obsessive in a semi-comatose style of wanting to get the gloves off and scratch herself. And she's managed to do that, by the way, twice. Uh, But didn't damage herself. But she could rip out the... um, the stitches she could rip out the um, the tubing uh, 
and that would be an acute crisis in and of itself that could take her out. Linda's not sentient, even though it looks like she's responsive or she is responsive in certain ways. Um, and but for moments, moments of clear, a, a little bit of clarity for moments. Um, I'm not optimistic at this point. I, I don't want to be optimistic. This is not the way my wife wanted to live out the end of her life. I fully expect that Linda's not going to survive very long. In spite of whatever positiveness is exhibited along the way here. And if I can get to her spiritually, to her soul, I am telling her, I've told her, that we're good, that she can go, she needs to go. Because she can't have the life that she's wanted anymore. Even if she hang, even if her body makes her hang around or she has to hang around for an extended period of time, she's never going to get back. We were close to getting back into the clearing of our life. She, she overcame cancer. She cured cancer. And she cured drug addiction as a result of having cancer. Cold turkey, 80 years old. God, she's tough. Strongest woman I've strongest woman, strongest person I've ever known. I was driving in this morning from it's about a twenty five minute drive back and forth between our place and the hospital. I was driving in the pattern drive. And I was on the on the Veterans Expressway, the first leg of high speed road coming in. And you know, we all think and drift while we're doing those those roads and we're driving at sixty five miles an hour or whatever. And I'm thinking to myself driving in, oh God, back in the trenches. We just have to keep our our eye on the ball and uh, look down and watch our feet and one step at a time just pull our way through another round. And I stopped in my thought process. Speaking's much faster than your brain and your thinking inside. And said, Michael, that's not what this is. And that ain't going to happen. You guys are not going to get to the clearing in this search through the woods. Not these woods for all the reasons I just went through with you all at an hour and 23 minutes, the longest podcast I've ever done, but screw it. Um, And I realized, I recognized that we're done to us no matter what. And I am beginning primarily the the primary thrust of my getting an everyday has is shifted to me 
I'm, I love my wife. I'm going to, I'm going to take care of my wife. I'm going to do whatever until her body is no longer on the planet with me. Don't get me wrong. Okay. I'm not abandoning her, but in terms of how I go through my life is different today than it was yesterday and it will never go back there again. I recognize that. Driving in. Now, if if she is the lottery winner, for God's sakes, the one in six million people, I'll be glad to eat my words in a year from now. But it's like counting on the lottery, guys. Let's be real. I don't buy lottery tickets, even when they have $6 billion lined up for the week. I don't go bother buying a lottery ticket. We've pledged to be transparent in this process. And I'm sticking to it. So I will keep reporting um, until everything is done. We're all done. And um, this is where we're at now. Um, And everybody in this web, in this network, um, who I have phone contact with or text contact kind of thing, I hope everybody knows what's going on before you hear this podcast. If if you hear this podcast and you feel like you got left out of the loop, I sincerely apologize. I just I just didn't hit it. I just didn't hit out all the balls at the at the right times, I guess. I'm trying. So I apologize. Uh I'm sincerely sorry if you feel like you got left out of this when you become aware of this because of how much time other people knew it and you didn't, or whatever. Um, I will continue to do a podcast as often as I can. Uh, I have time now. I, I, I don't need to spend time. I don't need to be with her 24-7. I don't need to take care of her. There's not enough of her presence to require that of me or to ask it of me. Uh, and I'm I'm going through the bittersweet in the time I spent with her. Uh, so um, I can be reached at eight zero two three two three six eight eight zero. It's iPhone, smartphone, textable. I can be reached at. Um, karmicfreedom.com that's our web page you can reach me through that our website uh, karmicfreedom at gmail.com email uh, if you wish to opine if you wish to communicate you wish to reach out you wish to say something about what's going on for yourself or about this and me that's fine uh, please opine i Desperately want to and need to. Hear from people who become aware, are aware, and are interested. Give a crap. 
means something to you. I'm doing fine, just in case this is crossing your mind. What's he mean by that? Um, I'm a mess. I'm in horrible grief and pain. And then I'm fine. And I really feel balanced. And I'm normal. And I'm accepting. And I'm ready. And I'm resolved and excited and challenged and interested and, you know, all the normal things in life. And they flip-flop back and forth, which is, in my belief and understanding, normal to this kind of experience. I don't think I'm, I'm not experiencing anything abnormal at this point. So thanks for listening, uh, and thanks for your love and your support, up to including this moment. And for the rest of the time that you may be interested, involved in what we do, what I do, what our work is about, what our work stands for. I wouldn't I wouldn't have this unfold. Any other way than it has and it is. So thanks again and this is Michael Brady of Partners for Karmic Freedom.